1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. We're going to come into some uh, important sections in Thessalonians regarding the end times, so the rapture, the coming of the day of the Lord. But before we do that, we're going to finish the section regarding practical holiness and shining as light. So this is the last paragraph for that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Speaking through the Apostle Paul, God says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father, we are dependent totally on you. I pray that you would help me be clear, and we pray you would help us think about, understand, and apply the things we hear this morning from your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at verse 9 and the first half of verse 10, which is Paul commending the church because of their love. He, he praises them because the love of Christ was evident in them, evident in the entire region. The love that the church expressed was an extension of the love God had placed in them. God is love. He has, on the one side, a general love. There is a, a common grace of God in loving the world. That love is expressed, Jesus said, through the rain that falls on the wicked and the righteous. It's expressed in the common grace of food and music and family. God's common love is expressed primarily through patience forbearance and there's a willingness to reconcile with sinners but that love is temporal temporal temporary because one day God's love will end for unbelievers and there will be wrath his love however toward his own is eternal there's a distinct kind of love that God has for his own that Christ has for his bride Paul says at the end of Romans 8 we know that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That eternal love brought us salvation and it brought us every aspect of salvation. That eternal love made possible our justification, that is being freed from the penalty of sin. He forgave us, he, he reconciled us to the Father. That eternal love also guarantees our final glorification, that is to be freed from the presence of sin, the sin in the body, sin in the world. That'll be, that'll be done away with. In between our justification and our glorification, it is the love of God that produces our sanctification. That's the ongoing process of being freed from the power of sin. That's the love of God doing that. Romans 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So because of God's love and by his Holy Spirit, everyone who belongs to God is continually growing in love. And that love is not supposed to stop. Jimmy and I were talking about our 
avocados a couple days ago. The season on our tree is done. So we enjoyed it. He still has some avocados. But our season's done. And as much as we enjoyed having them, no one in my family says, you know, it, it was such a good season of avocados and they tasted good. I don't mind at all if the tree never gave me another avocado. No one says that. You'd be mad. You expect them to come. We want more because that's the nature of the tree. It, it continues to grow. It continues to bear fruit. A dead tree is a dangerous tree. The same is true with our Christian life. We're never supposed to look back on some evidence of God's grace in our life and say, wow, that was so amazing. Did you see what God did in me and through me? And that's enough. I don't need to do anything anymore, at least not for a long time. That's not how it works. We're never done. We're always supposed to be growing and bearing fruit. And so for that reason, even though the Thessalonian church was an amazing example of love, Paul says you need to continue. You gotta keep growing. You need to keep working to showcase the love and the holiness of Christ, particularly among a culture that rejects them. Look with me now at the second half of verse 10. It's probably a new sentence in your, in, in your translation. Paul has commended the church because they demonstrate God's love among themselves and in the entire region. And then he says this to them, the middle of verse 10. There's a transition. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The theme here is that the church is to stand out in the world. Lord willing, we're gonna talk about verses 11 and 12 next week. Today, I simply want us to focus on the end of verse 10. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. To do what? This is clearly going back to verse nine. He's talking about brotherly love. He's talking about the, the love they show for one another and in all the region. They're brothers and sisters in the Lord. That means they've been adopted by the heavenly father. And Paul says, now you need to keep growing. They have a heavenly father, and then Paul, as their spiritual father, who planted the church, who preached the gospel to them at first, he pleads with them to persevere in love. The New American Standard says they are to excel in it. I, I like that translation. Another good translation would be to abound. The, the idea is he wants them to go beyond the minimum. He wants them to surpass any expectation. When your mom or your wife leaves the house and says, you know, I gotta take care of some things, honey. Do you mind cleaning the house while I'm gone? You can clean the house and do the bare minimum to say you did it, or you can go above and beyond, you can abound. The word speaks of something that is overflowing. That's what he wants. He wants love to be overflowing in this church. And he prayed for it back in chapter three. Go back just a second. Uh, chapter three, verse 12. We saw this last week. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So he prayed for it in chapter three, but now he's instructing them to do it. And there's an important theological note there. 
On the one hand, the love that flows from our life is the product of God. God has to produce it. He has to make it happen. So we pray for it to increase. At the same time, we need to work to make it happen. We need to exert ourselves. Like you said back in chapter one, it's a, it's a labor of love. So the question I simply want to put before our minds, and you can take notes and answer for yourself and then talk about this over lunch or in your family life groups. The question is, what can you do to abound in love? The measure, the standard of love is Jesus Christ who gave himself for his, his sheep. He laid down his life for the flock. We're never done. We're never there. We can always grow. So what can I do? What can you do? To grow. Think about that in, in your life. Think about that for yourself as a husband, as a wife, as a member of this church, as a brother, a sister, as a neighbor. How can you grow personally? What does that look like? If we're all growing personally, then that means collectively the church is growing. The church as a whole is going to abound because the church is the people. In telling the church to abound in love, he wasn't saying, you know, guys, you need to start a ministry that loves people. That way your church does that only. He's not saying do that. He was prodding everybody to grow in love. So we have this Saturday, love thy neighbor. That's on Saturday. Even if you can't make it or don't attend that meeting, you're still called to love your neighbor. And those of you who do go, you don't get to go and then come home and say, well, I'm done. I did my loving for the day. I hit the quota. We're called to continually love. The, the command never expires. We need to grow. We need to abound. So looking at this exhortation, this instruction, I want to just point out one principle from the passage, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time maybe prodding you towards some more tangible expressions of love. So this is a little different than what we normally do, but I think it's going to be profitable for us. Here's my one observation. In giving this instruction for the church to abound more and more, Paul models for us a helpful principle concerning the love of the church. And the principle is this. Christian love is a product of grace, not of guilt. Christian love is a product of grace, not of guilt. So as a mom or as a wife, you can guilt your kids and your husband into cleaning the house for you before you're gone, or before you get back. But let me explain what, what I mean in terms of how Paul addresses this. The apostle Paul, we know, was a strong man. He was not afraid to expose error, to call out um, hypocrisy. He was not afraid to rebuke and correct. You see that clearly in his letters, for example, to the Galatians, to the Corinthians. Those churches had clear problems that needed to be addressed, and Paul did that. But here, when he urges the church to grow in love, and that word urge expresses his love for them, his desire for this, he doesn't approach love in the same way that he would address those other problems in the church. I'm sure Paul could have sat down and thought of ways for the church to grow in love, but he doesn't mention those things. He doesn't rebuke them for what they're missing. He, he encourages them to keep growing. So imagine, you know, a junior high kid comes home from his school one day and it's, he just finished his midterm algebra exam and he came home and he said, mom, I got a 95%. How's mom and dad, how are they going to respond? Should they say, what's wrong with you? How could you miss those five points? What's your problem? 
being honest, that, that would be part of my temptation if one of my kids had one of those grades. <laughs> I'm tempted to say that. Look, that's so easy. What's, you know, what did you do? But hopefully we understand that that's not going to help. This kid got the highest letter grade possible. He should be commended and he should be encouraged to continue. That's the heart. Excel. You did good. Excel still more. There's always room to grow. That's Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. I don't know what grade Paul would have given them for their love, but he knew that this church was commendable. He knew, and he knew there was room to grow. So that's what I mean by saying love is produced by grace. Not by guilt. When you or I start looking around as a church and we make ourselves the love police, that's not going to help us move in the right direction. So last week we gave the announcement because of the combined services, helping make room so there's parking spots for visitors, just as an example. It's a way to show love. If you decide to park across the street or a little farther away, it shows love to someone else who might come who's got little kids or has trouble getting in and out or to their car. But the way to grow in that is not to go out and start, you know, take your whistle and no, 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 you're not handicapped enough. You know, that's not your spot. Your kids are healthy. They don't need to be parking there. That's not the culture we want. That's not going to grant the grace of God to help us grow in love. I came across a book this week where the author speaks about people in the church who make things harder for everyone. He called them well-intentioned dragons. Well-intentioned dragons. He writes, in most cases, quote, in most cases, though not always, they do not intend to be sinister. In fact, they're usually quite friendly. But their charm and earnestness belie their power to destroy. Within the church, again, these are well-intentioned dragons, the author says, within the church, they're often sincere, well-meaning saints. But they leave ulcers, strained relationships and hard feelings in their wake. They don't consider themselves difficult people. They don't sit up nights thinking of ways to be nasty. Often they're pillars of the community, talented, strong personalities, deservingly respected. But for some reason, they undermine the ministry of the church. In most cases, they're not naturally rebellious or pathological. They're loyal church members convinced they're serving God, but they wind up doing more harm than good, end quote. You don't want to be that kind of person. You can't guilt a church into being more loving. You need to do it with grace. You don't want to think you're serving God, but actually making things more difficult for the church. There are going to be intentional, clear signs of sin And those are to be addressed. Paul says that, Galatians 6, address it, but with the spirit of gentleness. But that clear, deliberate sin, even in the Old Testament, there was something known as high-handed sin, that's not the same as pointing out to someone how they might grow in love. It's not the same kind of sin. When you're in a, a line and the person in front decides to take all the potato salad and leaves none for you, It's not the same class of sin as someone flagrantly disobeying God. There's a place for them to grow and how to love others. But again, you don't want to be the love police. Hopefully, I hope that distinction makes sense. There are things to address, but but, but you have to produce grace in a church 
To grow in love, we want grace more than we want guilt. Grace leads to love. That's what Paul models. You're doing good, but keep growing. You don't want to walk around like judges at the Olympics. Deduction, two-point deduction, four-point deduction. Here's your score for today. You want to encourage. You want to model. So that's my one principle for today. True biblical love flows from grace rather than from guilt. And now, as I said, I want to point us towards some practical expressions of love. We're, we're not studying the passage. We're, I just want to help you apply it and, lead, and hopefully lead to some profitable conversations over lunch or in your family life groups. I was thinking, okay, how, how do I do that? I want to abound. I want to excel in love more and more. What does that look like? And thinking about what that looks like in my life, I, I remembered that the Bible says love is the summation of the Christian life. And I remembered our church has a summation of the Christian life. We call that our membership covenant. Our membership covenant is our attempt to summarize what the Christian life should look like. And so I think that's a good grid to evaluate your own love and then to think about the ways that we can grow. In the past, we've also preached on our membership covenant maybe every once or twice a year. We just finished in a membership class, so I thought it would be fitting to review that now. The membership covenant is two pages. The first page is 10 doctrinal declarations. I believe this about the Bible. I believe this about God. I believe this about mankind's sinfulness. I believe this about Christ. I believe this about the proper response to the gospel. But the second page is seven commitments of the Christian life, and that's gonna be our focus for today. For most of you, I think this is gonna be a review. It's nothing new, but I hope it's a good review and I hope it prods us toward growing more and more in love. What are those seven areas? The first commitment is a commitment to corporate worship. Corporate worship. If you intend to follow Christ, then you will value gathering with God's people in order to hear God's word and sing God's praises and encourage others, like Hebrews says, to love and good deeds. So one simple way to love others in the church is showing up. You are here. Are you more encouraged on a Sunday morning when the room is empty or when there's more people? The member, I think almost all the members of our church would say when there's more people. I, I stand, we're sitting in the front today, so when we're singing, I, I hear the voices. There, there's a joy. We're, we're, it's a reminder that we're united by Christ. There's a joy in hearing one another sing and proclaim these eternal truths. So if you want to grow in love, think about not just whether or not you're here, but how you meaningfully participate in the gathering. How often are you here? And when you are here, how invested are you in what's going on? Are you greeting members and visitors are you talking to others and asking about their life outside these walls? Are you showing up on time? Are you helping others get here and get here on time? Those are, those are ways that we abound in love with regard to the corporate gathering. And when we have the, the, the coffee time, the bread time in between services, it's not just you know, to help those who forgot to have breakfast. It's, it's a chance to interact with the church again. Does the things that you're hearing and thinking about in the sermon, are they spilling over into your conversations with others? 
What do you do after the gathering? Most of us are gonna go have lunch. That's an opportunity there to love people. Many of you are already doing this, I know. How can I show love to others in connection to our corporate worship? The second commitment of our membership covenant is holiness. Holiness. Biblically, there is no such thing as a person who says, I want to serve Christ, I want to honor Christ, but I'm not committed to personal holiness. That doesn't exist. We were called to be holy, and your holiness is an expression of love to the church. We see a negative example of that in the Old Testament with a man named Achan. Achan comes to us in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter six is the destruction of Jericho. God granted them this great victory. But before Joshua chapter six, you get Joshua chapter five, which is when God commands the people, the men, to be circumcised because they had spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering in circles and none of them had been circumcised. And God says, how are you, how are you expecting me to bless you and, and give you my promises, fulfill my promises, when you're not doing your part in the covenant? So the men were circumcised as an expression of their faith in Christ, as an expression of obedience and devotion and, and trust, because it would have made them weak, vulnerable, prone to attack. But they did it, and God gave them victory. And then in Joshua chapter 7, they go from Jericho to a city called Ai, spelled A-I. And instead of experiencing victory, 36 Israelites died, and their army of 3,000 men runs away. Why? Joshua 7 says because of one man named Achan. He had found some treasure, some, some jewel, silver and gold in Jericho, and instead of turning them over for God's treasury, he kept them for himself. And men died, and a battle was lost. Think about that. Because of one man. A New Testament parallel might be Ananias and Sapphira. That's Acts chapter 5. The church is growing. The church is amazingly expressing acts of love. People showed up for another gathering and they, they were probably expecting to sing together and worship, to hear the word taught, to hear the teaching of the apostles and instead it turned into a double funeral. The sin of one couple greatly affected the church. Your holiness matters. Your holiness is, is love for the church. On a more personal basis, Jesus and Paul both talk about how our sin can lead others into temptation or more sin. Loving others, this is what it says in our membership covenant, it means I'm gonna restrain my sin and even deny some of my own freedoms because I don't want to lead others into temptation. And that's, that's one of the, the griefs that I face at times. Like, oh, I, you know, I said something, I did something, and that turns someone towards sin. Abounding in love for others means I care for their sanctification as well. I'm gonna help them in their struggles. I'm gonna bear their burdens like it says in Galatians 6. And I'm gonna allow them to bear my burdens. Being a church means we step into one another's lives and we gently encourage one another toward holiness. And it means that my life is also gonna be open to others and they're gonna be able to step into my life and bear my burdens. So as you consider abounding in love, think about it also with regard to personal holiness. How can I grow? What can I do? The third category of our membership covenant is stewardship. Stewardship. The principle of stewardship is the recognition that everything I have, my time, my ability, my resources, they were given to me for a reason. 
Does love show, I'm sorry, does, does money show love? Not always, but it can. We give our kids food, we buy our kids blankets, we, we take care of them. This is the principle of stewardship. You, you serve others. Stewardship does not mean I get to demand that you give me your things. Remember, Peter said that to Ananias. He said, Ananias, the field was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted to. And after you sold it, the money was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted to. This is, again, it's not a guilt thing. It's a grace thing. But, but stewardship means I have to recognize that I'm responsible to use what I've been given to serve others. And that's something we can all grow in. Serving others in the church is a way to show love. We got people during, during the first hour and right now just uh, in the back room serving in the nursery. We have people serving with the youth, serving with the kids. You can think about how do I help? How do I contribute? You can, there are people who teach classes. There are people who, who serve with, with hospitality or in the security ministry or, or in the parking lot or, or in the ushers. Instead of looking around and saying, oh, you know what? Somebody's already doing that. Good, I'm off the hook. We can think, okay, how, how can I support that? How can I contribute? The music team, the, the AV stuff, this is, none of this happens by itself. People are serving. Usually when we mention stewardship, we generally think about giving money, and, and that matters. Obviously money matters because money is what makes our ministry possible. We have to buy things and repair things and, 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 and give curriculum to children, and we have to pay licenses to put songs on the screen. But you also need to think about your time and your abilities. How can I abound in love to serve others? and make more ministry possible. So you got corporate worship, you have holiness, you have stewardship. The fourth category is evangelism. Evangelism, this is love that extends into eternity. If someone hears the truth of Christ and responds to the truth of Christ in faith and repentance, they are spared from the wrath of God for all eternity. They are reconciled to their heavenly father forever. What, what, what could be a greater gift? If you're, if you're visiting, if, you're, if you haven't been in church a long time, you have to understand this is what the church exists to do, to proclaim the message of Christ. Intellectually, we know evangelism is an expression of love. We know that. But in practice, it just doesn't happen many times. We, we have the cure, we have the solution, and, and we've been sent by God as ambassadors. But many times we stay silent. We stay silent usually out of fear of man because the gospel does have an inherent offense. The gospel says you're a sinner, but the gospel also says I'm a sinner and we need Christ. The only way to salvation is to trust in him, to, 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 to deny ourselves, and to surrender to Christ as Lord who died for sin and who was raised from the dead. Paul quoted the prophet Isaiah when he said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What a a good thing it is to tell someone about Christ. But that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. But when we neglect that in our life, we have to recognize that's a lack of love. A, true, a truly loving Christian will be a Christian who evangelizes. And a truly loving church will be a church who evangelizes. So think about that. What can you do to grow in your love expressed through evangelism? 
You can evangelize at home with your kids, with members of your family. You can evangelize at work. You can evangelize in your neighborhood. Paul models that for the Thessalonians chapter two. He said, I gave you not only the gospel, but my life. You, you as a neighbor, open your home. Open your home up to, to your extended family as well. We have to understand God has placed us where he's placed us. God has given us the relationships that we have so that we would proclaim his truth, so we would proclaim his excellencies. We love others through evangelism. And we're called to abound. Category number five is prayer. Prayer, doesn't love express love? Doesn't prayer express love for others? If you told someone, hey, pray for me, I got this and this going on, they said, nah, I don't want to pray for you. That means they don't care, right? They don't have, they're not going to set apart the time to pray for you. Love, uh, uh, prayer is an expression of love. And can you and I get better at praying? Obviously. One of the reasons we typically give out a list of members at our members meetings is so that you can have that, you can save it, whether it's in your Bible or on your fridge or whatever, it reminds you who to pray for. As you go down the list and you go, I don't know who that is. You can come on a Sunday and say, hey, who is so-and-so? And put a face to the name. Even if you don't know who they are, you can pray for them. If you want to pray better for someone, you can have an investment. Go ask them. Send them a, give them a phone call. Send them a text. How can I pray for you? That, that's an expression of, of love. You can look at the list. You can pray for specific groups. You can pray for the elders. You can pray for ministry leaders. You can pray for the youth. You can pray for college students. You can pray for young moms. Or you can just take the whole members list. I'm going to pray for the members. I'm going to every day take a couple, two or three. You can think about ways to include others in your prayers. The, the, the Spanish ladies, they meet on Tuesdays. They, a large chunk of their meeting is prayer. They pray for the church. They gather to pray. There are people who during the, the bread time, the fellowship time, they'll step aside, they'll pray right there, or they'll step into one of the, the, you know, the rooms down here, they'll just pray. It's an extension of love. Praying for your neighbors before you have a meal is an extension of love. So we pray for those inside the church, and we pray for those outside the church. We even have specific commands in the Bible regarding who we pray for. We're told to pray for our government leaders. That's an expression of love. Category number six in our membership covenant is mutual care. This is a, the most obvious one. When you say love one another, you think of the actual things you do to serve others. This is helping someone in need. It's, it's showing Christian sympathy and Christian courtesy. And I'm so blessed, and as elders, we, we, in our meetings, we will talk about ways that we're blessed by the congregation, and we know that many of you are doing this already. There are people visiting others in their home who can't leave their home. There are people inviting others over for dinner. There are people helping one another with, with work around the house, with tangible needs. There are people meeting financial needs of others. In referencing those expressions of love in the church, Jesus said, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, Jesus said. You're showing, Christ says, you're showing me love. You're showing Christ's love when you love the church. There are the physical things we tend to for one another, sickness, and there are the spiritual things. We help one another confront problems, problems in marriages, problems in families, problems at work. Helping one another, hearing one another, that's all an expression of love, and you need to think about how can I abound in this more and more. 
The final commitment of our membership covenant is unity. So there's corporate worship, holiness, stewardship, evangelism, prayer, mutual care, and lastly, unity. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. When there's a brother or a sister in conflict, we can show the love of Christ by working to try to bring reconciliation. We want to help the people understand one another's positions. We want to help work toward a solution. We also show God's love by extending forgiveness to others and, and asking for forgiveness when it's necessary. We show love to others by putting an end to gossip and by uplifting one another, which is a lot easier to say than to do. The church, you guys know this, the church is not the building. The church is not even the actual service. The church is not the denomination. The church is the people. And when you have people, you have differences. And when you have people, you have sin. So when you have differences of opinion, and when you have sinners, you have the potential for conflict. Showing love does not mean I'm just going to ignore the problems and pretend like nothing's happening. Showing love means you're working to help bring restoration and peace. Showing love for the church, abounding in love, is doing our part, like Ephesians says, to preserve the unity of the spirit. These seven areas are just a starter for your own conversation. You've got to put this you know, on paper if you want or in a conversation. What can I do? What does it mean practically to abound in love? I hope putting the covenant before you is a good start. And hopefully those are the conversations we'll have this week in family life groups or over lunch. How can I abound in love? Think about it for yourself. Talk about it with someone else. And our hope is the Lord would guide us as we shine our light before men so they would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the love you've shown in our hearts. So many ways we have seen it, experienced it, felt it. And as our mission statement says, we want to express that love more and more. We want to abound and overflow. Forgive our complacency and open our eyes to the many ways that we can love others. We pray that that love would be expressed through our corporate gathering, through our personal pursuit of holiness and our stewardship and our evangelism, our prayer, our mutual care. We pray that our church would be united, actively, all of us actively working to preserve that unity. I thank you for the love we experience in our families. I thank you that we're not alone in our spiritual life. You've given us brothers and sisters. And we pray that love would shine more and more brightly for the glory of Christ. We ask in his name, amen.